to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Phil McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guests are Scott Smith and Madeline Ashby, the authors of How to Future, Leading and Sensemaking in the Age of Hyperchange. Scott is the founder and managing partner of Changiest, a futures research and consulting partnership established in 2007. And Madeline Ashby is a futurist and science fiction writer based in Toronto. She's the author of the Machine Dynasty novels, and her most recent work, Company Town, was a Canada Reads finalist. I'm really excited to have you both on the shows. I did a truncated version of your bios because you have written everywhere, you have spoken everywhere. And if I took the time to read all that, first of all, I would stumble over all of it and it would be terrible. And also we would we would have less time to actually discuss the book. So I wanted to spend time on all the books, but I wanted to make sure that all our listeners know that these folks are far more accomplished, published, traveled, and and consulted than my reading of their bios did any justice to. So it, it's really awesome to have you both on the deep dive. It's fantastic to be here. Thank you. So, you know, I'm going to open up with a very broad-based question, which I think will lead us into the heart of the book, which again is titled How to Future leading and sense-making in an age of hyper-change, which I found to be a particularly useful read in this time that transcends beyond really the title. I, I think when folks see books like this, they tend to very much lump them into you know, the business, strategy, management, financial times, business week world. And I found in reading the book that it's actually far more applicable to a lot of broader conversations than even the title would suggest, even though the future is very popular. So those were just some of my leading impressions. But one of the things I want to ask, and it's, it might be a little facetious, but I think you'll get where I'm going with this. How do we hold futurists accountable? Hmm. That's a good question. And by the way, I wouldn't want Business Week and the Financial Times to not think that it's for them. But oh, it's, you, exactly. it's not just for them. It's not just for them. It's a conversation we had with our publisher from the very beginning that it walks a fine line of trying to, to kind of speak to a number of audiences. And that's something we can kind of get back to later on. But the, the accountability issue, I think, is Interesting, and this is the time of year when, you know, all of the, the sort of annual trends articles get published, and this is a call for accountability from some quarters. I think one of the starting points is to not hold futurists to account for the wrong things. And by that, I mean, there's often a kind of both a, a, a malpractice of prediction from the broader, quote unquote, kind of futurist field of looking at this function or this role or this kind of capability as a predictive one shot, hit it on the nose, bullseye type of work that attempts to foresee exactly what's going to happen. And the you know, accountability metrics are all kind of out of skew for that. Whereas we're much more in our kind of side of the field, we're much more concerned with finding out new things, understanding what we don't know and getting a better grip on uncertainty and for that, the metrics are much fuzzier. And we actually discuss that later on in the book in terms of how do you actually, how do you measure? Because that's the inclination of modern organizations. But I think you know, the accountability kind of comes in understanding what it is you're actually looking for. And I think Madeline will speak to that. Yeah, I think the easiest, were I to imagine a future in which we hold futurists accountable, it would be because we gave them public money. When we fund science, when we fund research, we can then hold those researchers, those scientists accountable for the way in which they perform experiments, for, for what they research, for research ethics, for their methodology, and so on. And there's no reason that that model can't also be applied to what we do. 
when we get public money, I think, or when we are asked to research something more broadly, you get a broader variety of answers. If I'm asked to research something for a private interest, that research and that data, whatever it is that, that I generate, is going to be very narrow because it'll be tailored to a specific interest. And so it's less about, did you get this right? It's, did you get this right for whom? And there's actually a phrase came to mind for me over the weekend when I was looking at someone's quote about the sort of the super forecasting fad at the moment. And for some people, they're spending money to be right. But I think the smarter people are spending money to be smarter, to find out what they don't know and to understand it better. And there's a distinction between those two pursuits that is very clear to me. And, you know, I think those are are interesting points. And the reason why I asked the question is because I've often not loved the term futurist, right? Which is not a critique of the work. I do similar work. It's just that it seemed that there's people like yourselves, and I'm a little biased because I'm talking to you, but also I always tell folks that the beauty of doing a show like mine particularly when you're as opinionated as me, is that (laughs) I only bring on people that I want to, right? Like I don't have to talk to anybody. So I only look for folks who I feel have rigor and actually engage with ideas. So having said that, it's a key distinction between folks like yourself who use the term and do the work you do and those who just seem to brand the term in order to do, you know, just say crazy outlandish things with no accountability. So that was where that was, that was kind of going. And there is a a distinction there, right? Between those who have rigor and those who just are wasting time and resources. Uh, Well, we definitely can come up with some strange ideas, but Mm. as you say, there's often a reason for it. There's a framing for it. We are an interesting kind of pairing in that Madeline, you know, earned the degree in the field. Her master's degree is in this field, whereas I came through it by practice, by kind of street miles, <laughs> miles earned, and actually was given the title by someone else because that's what everyone in the company I worked for was called. That was the common terminology. You know, the terminology itself has a lot of baggage. It's pretty fraught. And so untying and untangling that is an often complicated starting point just to even then get to, well, what is it you're actually doing here? What are you trying to do? And Madeline, I wanted to ask a follow-up to the public question, actually. Well, the the response with the use of, you know, public funds being a part of this process, i.e. people being engaged in work on behalf of, you know, some larger entity. When I hear public, that's what I think of, right? And I'm curious, can that potentially solve the issue? Because I, I think of, public, again, taxpayer money funded projects, which I would think didn't really pass that test of being any more rigorous than, you know, private money. And maybe it's stuck in my head because I recently watched the Netflix thing with um, the Challenger um, shuttle disaster. And, you know, I'm aging myself, but I watched all that in real time when I was younger. And, you know, it struck me how much the motivations of an organization like NASA, publicly funded government money, was very political, right? They had a branding perspective as to like, the more we fly these shuttles, the more likely people are to engage with NASA and then we'll get more money. And I think about the Toronto Sidewalks Lab project, you know, again, very public, but yet fraught with a lot of issues. So I'm not asking you to respond to those specifically, but just the idea of public generally as a course corrector or a barometer of that gets us in a better place? Like, what do you kind of think about that? I think it's an opportunity to impose standards. I think of it mostly as an opportunity to impose standards. And there are usually standards of practice or sort of requirements when there's a public RFP. If you respond to a public RFP, there's usually some sort of standards or they ask you to show your work in some sort of way. And I think that's one of the goals of the book, I think, was to sort of demystify some of what it is that we do for people who are less familiar with it, not necessarily in the hopes of, but but with an eye to saying like, look, there's a way to do this that is rigorous. There is a name for these things. There's a name for these methods. There's a name for these methodologies. You can do 
the same task a bunch of different ways and lead to interesting results each of those different ways. And when you do, you're sort of indicating to whoever consumes the product at the end or whoever reads the scenario or whoever is, is looking at what you generated, and you can show them how you did it. When you can show somebody how you did something, you are inviting them into the process too. And I think you get greater participation when you show somebody sort of how you did it. Like, here's how the trick is done. Here's how you can do it too. I think having worked a lot on the commercial side as well as the public side, there's a kind of theoretical distinction, but there isn't really in the sense that, you know, that you're still showing your work, you're still actually working with rigor and you're still you're trying to apply apply exactly the same standards. Mm-hmm. There is a greater transparency when doing it in public rather than, than in a private context, but that shouldn't provide cover for kind of weaker methods or less rigor or an inability to kind of show the work. And I think we actually, if you sort of look at the size of the chapters in the book, the piece up front, which I felt very strongly about because it's where I come from as a, as a grounded research person, the piece up front that describes in detail, the definitions, the processes, the workflows and things that you can put in place, they're not mandatory, but that you can put in place actually provides that level of strong foundation Mm -hmm. from which should flow or can flow more informed, more thoughtful, more detailed explorations of the future that aren't just shooting from the hip. And I mean, as an anthropologist, Philip, you'll know this. It's like you come with notes. You you know, you have the field receipts, right? You've actually got the sort of the data that you've drawn a conclusion from and developed insights from. That gives the people who you're working with a higher level of confidence that you've thought about this. There's a structure by which you've arrived at these insights. And then there's more freedom to explore the insights above that and to go interesting places when you feel like you're standing on a strong foundation. And I think that gives us a great opportunity to kind of more formally segue (laughs) into the concepts of the book. And I try to pick and choose like the terms that I use and the definitions that I do only because I don't want to give the whole book away, right? Like, you know, obviously we want to encourage folks to go out there and engage with the book and spend time with the book. You know, I think it's a resource. That's how I looked at it. It's like, it's a resource that you can constantly revisit. but. I think we can start with kind of going through a little bit of what's described as the featuring process, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's in that first little bit. And you kind of go through this idea of like, and I'll list them here. We we can discuss in total sensing, sense-making. My notes are really bad. Going through scenarios, storytelling, and then finally assessment, right? I had to pick this book up, you know, I, I write small. And then there's like a tuning and rethinking piece that happens in there. Then it's a promoting innovations piece that happens in there. So I think that process as outlined is kind of circular, gives us a good jumping off place to talk about how within this frame, you can start to define things, show the work, so to speak. So, you know, I'll leave you time to kind of walk us through how that works and why you landed in that specific place to kind of get this wheel turning. There's a couple of starting points on that. The first is just the act of throwing a kind of lasso, you know, magic lasso around (laughs) a process is tricky in that there's an expectation in a lot of business books, kind of shouting trademark above this process and saying, this is the one true methodology, all other methodologies are false. That is not the case here. But what we found when looking back over, I mean, for changes, we've had company for 13 years, I've been practicing this field for, you know, more than 15, 16, Madeline for quite a while as well. If we looked back at the work we've done over a really wide spectrum of questions and engagements and explorations, there was a common set of steps. It's not a crazy set of phases that you go through, right? There's a discovery phase. There's a synthesis phase. There's a, a, a kind of modeling and exploration phase. And then there's a kind of looking back and sense checking element to it. So any project that we've done tends to kind of have those four phases in different sizes and shapes. They accordion out, they look different. Some are are more well-structured, some are quite loose and exploratory, but it is a kind of cycle or arc, if you will, of defining and exploring different spaces that's not a million miles from things like a double diamond in design or other kind of sociology 
or even the sort of scientific method in a sense. But having said that, it's distinct from the idea of something like a double diamond design process in that it isn't a solution seeking, you know, linear finite process. It expands and contracts over time. But what you're really trying to do first is frame the question, which is a piece that gets skipped over quite a lot, and actually ask some good questions about what are we trying to explore here? The future of X can mean many different things to different people before you get started. So defining that's super important. Then understanding the boundaries of the the world that you're exploring and what are the kind of pieces that you need to collect, the sensing element. What is the research you need to do? What are the, the kind of data points and insights, hard and soft, that you need to collect? Then what is the best mapping and sense making and structuring process for that? once you get that information together. And that's often defined by the kind of information you're collecting. And then you need to be able to talk to somebody else about it in a story, a scenario, or a narrative, which is really where Madeline and I kind of come together in our backgrounds, is the kind of kicker where you're the, the important piece where you distill all of the, all of what you've collected and made sense of into a narrative that someone else can understand, into a story that looks like the world we live in or not, you know, and operates at human scale. So you can map those insights to a time in the future when these things happen. And then be able to go deeper into that, perhaps prototype a piece of that world narratively or physically, try it out, exercise it, explore it, and, you know, dig into it, understand what works and what doesn't about that, which is where it becomes more tangible. And then that last piece is being able to step back and look at what you've done, how you did it, how you approach questions and then ask, was this the right way to do it? How would we retool for the next exploration? And I think that, you know, those little bits on the beginning and end, the scoping and the assessment piece are super critical, but they get passed over really easily in most engagements. I want to spend a little bit of time with that framing piece. Mm -hmm. And and it kind of seems like you came back to it at the end again. We're talking about how that gets sometimes passed over in the beginning. And I'm curious if both of you have experienced this. I know I've done lots of different engagements for clients and organizations and often posed with a challenge. You know, my initial thing is to do that framing, like ask more questions about the challenge, which sometimes clients are not really that receptive to, right? And they're and they're the ones who framed framed it in the first place, right? And mm-hmm. it's it seems like a lot of times they just expect you to like wind you up and go. Yeah. Right. Um, so I'm curious, like, <laughs> if you've experienced that, which by, by the laughter sounds like you have. And when you have, how do you encourage, if you encourage them to actually, you know, what I call like take a beat and slow down, like, which sometimes is antithetical to how people really want to work. They just kind of want you to jump in. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm usually a little bit slower. So I'm curious how you both feel about that. It definitely came through experience. I mean, there's two sets of questions that you ask. One is a kind of outward facing set, which is when you say future, what do you mean? Future of what, for whom, how far is the future when we're talking about this? And that's often related to the, you know, the industry that you're in and it's kind of thinking cycles and development cycles. So there's some really sensible questions that differ based on the topic. If we're talking about cars versus pharmaceuticals versus climate change versus architecture, those could have four very different sets of future framings to them. And so that's partly just getting clarity from a good brief development point of view, which you learn as as a researcher or consultant in your professional life. The other piece that I think gets passed over more often is an inward looking set of questions, which is, how do you think about the future inside this organization? Mm-hmm. How do you talk about it with each other? Where does it live? What does the knowledge look like? How do you express it? You know, is it quantitative or qualitative? Is it a graph, a numbers-driven organization or a story-driven organization? Is it something that's only ever lived in a corner of the company somewhere and doesn't get talked about elsewhere? Or is it a kind of ongoing folklore that extends across the culture. One is getting the questions right. The other is getting the form right. And I think those two are really important. And again, we've learned that through stumbling because you think, well, let's hurry up and get to the first invoice. Right? <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's get this project moving. Let's get to the first invoice and, and off we go. But, but then, Anchor them with money. Anchor them with money. Yeah. But the problem is the future is, you know, it's this kind of divergent space that the further away you get from the starting point of the question, the farther off beam you might be. So it's a navigation 
it's a survival survival question for us and a navigation question for us. And I think often like the organizations we work with through no fault of their own don't find that they really understand those questions until maybe until we're done. And then they sort of got where we were going. You know, what are you what were you asking us these questions for? Well, <laughs> It's like selling insurance or something, right? You're saying, well, how long do you think you're going to live? Well, who is this for? What do you want to do with the money? These are important questions to get somebody the right outputs. I think it's a question of asking who is the audience. That's one of the places where it crosses yeah. over with myself as being a science fiction writer. Is like at the core, you kind of have to say at the beginning, like, well, okay, who's going to read this and why? What entices them to do it? Once you know the answer to that question, it's like, well, is it going to be six people on a board or is it going to be shared with the entire organization? Are you giving it to your manager up the chain to sell him or her on something? Or are you sharing it to your people so that they will get some new ideas? What is it? Sometimes that has to be a more blunt conversation than not. Like sometimes you literally do have to ask that. But other times, you know, they'll just tell you right up front, which is always nice. And you know, I want to spend a little time with the, you know, the culture conversation, which I, I felt was also woven so far, woven into your answers, but it's also woven into the the fabric of the book in the sense that there's time that is spent discussing just generally the concept of the future. That concept, that word means different things to different people within the frame of their culture and and how that impacts the work. And in my focus, culture and strategy are very closely linked. I don't view them as these opposing forces as like the Drucker mm -hmm. comment, you know, famous Drucker quotation highlights. You know, I, I feel that they are actually very strong connective tissue. So I, I spend a lot of my time in, in culture spaces. So I'm always interested in how you have woven that into your understanding of just even the terminology of the future, quote unquote, the future. As you say, it's, it's really, really central, both from a kind of definitional point of view, but even just from a sort of a mindset point of view. It's not just a technical problem. The future isn't just a kind of like upgrade problem. That we, if, we just, if we just fix this technical problem, we'll have everything sorted out. Not only is it everything that happens after now, temporally, it also is deeply rooted in how we think about what we want, where we want to go, what the big stories are and the narratives that we're operating under, whether it's a company or a society or an individual, but also that issue of the three of us have very different lived experiences. So we have different expectations, different assumptions about the future and what it's going to bring us. It's interesting right now, we're starting to kind of just pick at some of those issues in the political arena in the U.S., incredibly overdue, but it's, it's throwing up these issues of how people's definition of what they expect to happen next differs so greatly. And we've experienced this in particular working across a lot of different cultures. We've worked with people in, you know, dozens of countries, different languages, you know, work, workshops in Russian, we've run workshops in Arabic, we've run, you know, in French. I mean, all of those just open up all of these different cultural boxes that are so fascinating to explore. And you can't get to where you want to go collectively if you don't understand where everybody's standing now, you know, on that position. Again, sort of as a science fiction writer, you have to recognize that people's visions of the future or any one individual's visions of many possible futures are sort of always already mediated through the futures they have already consumed by a fiction, by advertising, what have you. And it creates this shorthand that you sometimes have to cut through a little bit and before you can talk about, well, okay, mm -hmm. this is one of many possible futures. Here's what this sort of looks like. You know, it's a double-edged sword. It can kind of give you a, a critical language with which to discuss a possible future, or it can obscure a lot of the details of, of another possible future. So I think there's that as well, that you're always dealing with not just other definitions of what the future could be, but just sort of other visions of it as well. If you don't ask people or you don't at least probe into what basis those visions come from and those kind of ideas and framings of the future, mm -hmm. it can be really problematic. In the time that we worked in, in kind of Arabic speaking cultures, you know, we really began to understand, for example, the difference just saying probable, plausible, possible, or uncertainty, you can say it and mean something, but it doesn't necessarily land in the ears of the other person in the same way, in part because those words have different meaning. The distinctions are different. A distinction that works in California is not necessarily going to work in Egypt, 
And those distinctions are partly cultural, they're partly societal, but they're also partly ling just linguistic. So we can be talking all day long about, well, this thing is plausible and that thing is probable. And we're thinking almost quantitatively, there's a, there's a, a gradient there. And people are looking back at us thinking, those words mean roughly the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, And then you realize the conversation has sheared off into two different directions that you never bothered to go back and check. And that has, a again, like building, <laughs> you know, building a building, you need to be thinking about where you're going, because if the measurements are off and the, and the definitions are off, Challenger, you know, to bring that back up is a great definition. Well, we said we meant, you know, uh, centimeters and you were meant millimeters. And you find that that's problematic when you're, you know, pumping thousands of pounds of pressure through a system. This is no different. To that point, like now that we're kind of getting into a dissection of meaning and culture, and I'm curious because Madeline, you made a, a really good point about who is the thing for, right? Like, is it for a board? Is it for a boss? Like, when I heard that, it immediately starts to think about, you know, who are the stakeholders? How do we engage to include voices in right. the quote-unquote future, right? Like, I'm sitting here in New York, specifically in Brooklyn, where a lot of what is the the future of New York, what the New York that we are living in, in this current moment, was decided 10, 15, 20 years ago to design and build and market a city oh, yeah. for certain types of people, right? And, and now we're living with that in 2020 as we deal with COVID-19 and any number of other systemic issues as it pertains to New York City. So I use that personal example just to open up the conversation about bringing voices into these conversations about the future when often, you know, even under best of circumstances, it seems like we leave a tremendous amount of voices out, out of these conversations. So I wanted to get reaction to that and thoughts about that, because you, you talk about people a lot in the book. You're absolutely right. And it's a thing that it's an issue that, again, that fiction and science fiction and genre fiction in general, and, and I think all art sort of reckons with who got to make the art and for whom, who got paid for making it, whose trends got co-opted, who got appropriated, you know, all of it, right? There's a reason that Nora Jemsen's uh, most recent collection is How Long Till Black Future Month. And there's a reason that there's been a push in the in the most recent past, like I would say probably over the past five or 10 years, actually, for futures that come from marginalized populations, for indigenous futures here in Canada, for African futures, which is what I believe Nnedi Okorafor calls her books. So I think that there's that push. And it's a push that I think we have always, between the two of us, we've always argued, argued for or felt in sympathy with. But I would say futurists who are actually interested in multiple possible futures should be interested in because we know that anything that starts at the farthest reaches somewhere will inevitably make its way to the center. If the idea has any merit or the if it's going to catch the public imagination or, or what have you, it will always make its way through. The example I often share with my students is something like Paris is Burning. Paris is Burning is a documentary about Vogue and ball culture in Brooklyn, in, in New York, that was made in like 1999 and released in 1990. Now all of that terminology, X number of years later, is close to 40 years later, is part of common parlance on mainstream television in the US. At that time, that didn't seem like that could ever happen. Now it's you know part of political discourse. And so you have to look in places, and this is something that we talk about a lot, I think, at the beginning of the book, you have to look in these places where you wouldn't necessarily think to look, where because the future is always is always happening, and it's always happening in the places that you're not looking. For a long time, we've kind of futured at and futured for, but not necessarily futured with. <laughs> you know, we've kind of been doing too much of the at and to. <laughs> you know, here it is, and that's why we talk about you know things like flat pack futures. This kind of idea that if I just serve this up in a package, you'll take it. And not stopping to consider how you future with and for, you know, a broader spectrum of people. And that can either be in a public sense or in a kind of commercial sense, both apply. And we work really hard as a group internally ourselves to 
reflect that to kind of try to innovate with methods and approaches that don't just leave space for it, but actively make space for it and enable that to happen. And it was really important to try to build that into or document that in a way in the book in the sense that, okay, that's great to say it. It's great to say have more diverse futures, but how do you technically, tactically, you know, standing there in the room, do that? What types of questions can you ask yourself? How can you put together some processes, broadly speaking, that ensure that they're architected, they're designed for multiplicity of voices and not just try to kind of hurry up and do it after the fact or just invite a person of color or a woman or, you know, somebody who's non-binary onto the panel at the end. But you, you're building for those inputs to be integrated from the very beginning of the process if that's the outcome you desire. And it should be you know, universally desirable, but, you know, it's attenuated in different ways depending on what the question is. And I think without being able to kind of give more detail, well, how, do you, how would that work? <laughs> how can I do that? We've just finished a project. My colleague, Susan Cox-Smith, has just finished a project with some other colleagues in the futures field for the International Women's Development Agency. And it was a feminist futures exploration. But it, most importantly, it was a set of tools and a process to enable open exploration of feminist futures for organizations who will be trying to realize those positive futures. But that requires setting up some tools that are specifically designed to enable, open up those conversations. It's not just looking at a bunch of trends and going, okay, how will that affect women in the future? But actively positioning different lenses that give different kind of cultural viewpoints of what we might consider to be the same future through those different lenses, through different eyes. What does it mean to have a kind of patriarchal view of the future? What does it mean to have a diverse or decolonized view of the future and all these sorts of things? And if we can articulate these approaches, again, in what's still kind of the edge of the conversation, they will hopefully make their way forward to the center of the conversation and become second nature. So when we set out to think about the future of transportation or healthcare or education or food or whatever, those are reflexive built-in considerations, even if it's just product innovation. I mean, especially if it's public policy. The future is a big thing yeah. <laughs> and tools shouldn't be wielded lightly, you know. So I think it's important that we have these conversations about for and whom, at whom, you know, and with whom along the way. That allows me to kind of bring in another point, which is the linear nature in which we're often having these conversations seems that we're always forward looking, right? We're thinking about the thing. The future obviously implies forward. But there's roots to so many of the things that we determine to be the future that exist in our past, near past and far past. So, you know, Madeline, you referenced Paris is Burning. It's always good to reference Paris is Burning. It's an amazing documentary, <laughs> you know, and I think about there's a, a video that I use in workshops and presentations. I, I use the first portion of it, but the whole thing is worth watching called the overview of fact. And it talks about when, I don't know why I'm using all these NASA references today. I'm not usually this much of a NASA person. We are, so it's cool. <laughs> Maybe there's something in the universe right now happening with me and NASA. But um, it's basically this, this video that talks about when they were first making missions to go to the moon, the idea was the moon, right? They had the literally moonshot, right? But it's when they were actually in the orbital and kind of turned the cameras back that it reframed their position where they were like, you know, we spent all this time and energy thinking the moon was the most important thing. It was obviously great to go, but it's seeing the planet, seeing Earth framed, looking from space back that gave us an entirely different perspective where in this video, they comment that that was actually the thing that was most impactful, seeing the planet in a way we'd never seen it, gave us a better appreciation for our humanity. So long setup to basically having an idea of looking at a thing, but then finding other things along the path that become important and also kind of linking that to this idea of drawing from the past in order to have a better predictive future. You know, somewhat I'm kind of gluing those thoughts together because of the way the conversation was going. So feel free to unglue them, to keep them glued, however, but I wanted to make sure I got that in. There's a thing there in that both of us were trained as historians to begin with. 
Scott and I were both, you know, true. we both, true, uh, facts. true facts, we both came from, before we started looking at the future, we were trained to look at the past. And I think that that's one of the areas of alignment that we have, that we initially always sort of start out in that framing phase, looking at the past of an organization, you know, looking at the history and context of, you know, who the client is, where they came from, how they started, if there's any, you know, gothic secrets lurking in the, lurking there. I've been burned by that before. (laughs) Um, Things like that to sort of say like, well, okay, this is why you're asking this question. This is what you told us, but here's the longer history or the the more contextualized reason for why you're asking this particular question. And I think that gives us a lot of, again, that that depth and that rigor to then start answering whatever question that might be, you know, having been sensitive to and aware of and taking into account that past. Going back to the framing questions, where has the future lived in this organization mm-hmm. before and what, how has it been communicated? We need to know some things like that so you have a sense of continuity. You know, is there a particular already a kind of cultural metabolism going on here to the way this group talks about it or the way a culture talks about it? And what things do you want from the past? I mean, you're probably familiar with the sort of persona development, you know, things like the empathy mapping and tools like that where you're often just trying to kind of look at the present state snapshot. What is this person thinking, feeling, hearing, et cetera. There's a couple of important things to put in there. You need to kind of run a through line of time in that, and that you want to not just consider where this person is at the moment, but where they think they want to go and what their aspirations, what is the pull of the future, but also what is the anchor of the past? And that became really important, again, in working in cultures where that cultural anchor is incredibly strong and also incredibly important and central. You can have a culture. So we've, Madeline and I have taught together in Dubai and in the Emirates and uh, UAE. And, you know, it's an, talk about hyper change. I mean, it's a place where the rate of change at surface level is incredibly fast. It's driven at an accelerated rate on purpose. But the distance to the past is actually very, very short. It's very small. First of all, you're talking about a country that's only that's younger than I am. It was only founded in 1970-71. So you've got a, a country culture that is both hundreds, if not thousands of years old in terms of the people who were there, but also quite recent in terms of statehood and its kind of mechanisms of planning and thinking. You know, it's like going back to Stuart Brand's pacing layers. You've got incredibly slow-moving environment and deep culture. You've got faster-moving systems and policies and infrastructure. And then you've got this like whoosh of change happening at a top layer. And those don't live independent of each other. They're actually geared in interesting differential ways. And so understanding, this is why some futurists use a tool called causal layer analysis. It's not something we often bring up in our own work, but there is a method for asking what are the the litanies and mythologies that are going on here so you can understand what's deep below the water. Even when you're trying to create something that may seem very, you know, temporary or superficial, like a a kind of innovation on a product, sometimes you want to go deep and understand the, the sort of archetypes of mythology that are happening back in time. And all of this doesn't even get into Mm. framings of time and history and circularity in some cultures. And, you know, I'm a language nut. So, I'm, you know, there are things like the culture or the future being in front of some cultures instead of behind it and all these kinds of things. So if you don't have at least a passing acknowledgement of that, it's a bit tougher. You're just floating in space. You're, you're not anchored to anything when you're trying to assess the future or the future is what they could be. I wanted to also jump in on, you know, you guys spend quite a bit of time talking about mapping and, I have a quote that I I use in presentations that, you know, the map is not the territory, right? Famous quote. And I use culture as the part to illuminate what the map misses, right? That it's granular things happening on the quote unquote street that tell the story more than the map itself. You know, New York City subway map, which is what I use as the graphic, only tells you stops and how to get from one place to another, but it doesn't tell you anything about the neighborhoods. It doesn't tell you anything about what's going on. It doesn't give you the distinctiveness. So maps are useful, but not total, mm-hmm. right? So it's also it's a lie too. Most maps don't accurately depict the thing they're showing you. Yeah. Yes. Their best effort representations. <laughs> yeah. They're often incorrect and reductive. And disproportionate. Right. 
And, right. <laughs> and there's a great book that I also reference. I'm going to escape the title right now, but it it's like an atlas of lost and wrong maps. And it kind of shows all these different maps in the world that were once used for people to navigate by and places they, they're like, oh yeah, there's a whole country over there. And it's like, no, there isn't, right? It is like, and I find it to be a fascinating book. So I'm, I'm curious how we kind of pull those ideas together, knowing that maps are, like I said, incorrect, reductive, they are proximate, they do all these things, but yet in the work, they are still incredibly useful, right? Like, yeah. so I'm going to throw that out there. I did a talk, I guess, about three weeks ago at Sonar Plus D in Barcelona, where this I kind of broke the last 50 years down in 10 minutes in five sections. And in each case, it was the sort of the formula was not the territory. The roadmap is not the territory. The map is not the territory. And the diagram is not the territory. Each of these kind of different phases that we've been in, in terms of operating models of the future, are just temporary consensual hallucinations so we can get on the same mental terrain, plane, whatever you want to use to understand something that, again, back to our earlier discussion about what the different ways in which we conceptualize individually the future. The mapping part partly comes out because I'm a, a visual thinker and most of my colleagues have, have become, if weren't already, visual thinkers. And so we tend to work at that kind of base layer conceptual visual mapping of things so we can see relationships, at least notionally. We can see a shadow over the connection between this and that, just like the MTA and subway map. It's a good enough representation of what's down there. So you see the relationships between the one, two, three, and the F and D and E. I used to live in Brooklyn. You know, it, it gives you a sense of that one goes over there, this one's over here. So, you know, having some kind of common terrain that you can establish things on, I think, is makes it easier for people who think about the future differently to negotiate and sense make collectively. It's a stronger or weaker metaphor, depending on where you're working. You know, I do tend to think of it as, and we come back to futuring as a verb, this act of exploring the future. Yes, it's a foreign country and you don't know what's on the, the landscape until you start exploring it using a combination of your own inbuilt sense-making. You know how terrain flows, water is down, mountains are up, and then establish what things are active on that terrain, trends, big forces, macro trends, etc., and what speed in which they're moving or stationary. You can start to get a sense of how you get to the preferred destination on the other side. As broken as that metaphor is, it works for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So it just becomes a kind of common way to establish a metaphor that most people can work to without it over becoming the end in itself. And I think that's where things like there's a, you know, we use a tool called the futures cone in some futures discourse, and we're really past the point of it becoming fetishized as the end point, as opposed to a good enough mapping metaphor that actually came out of the military. Surprise. <laughs> so it's important to know how to find a common field plane that you can conceptually sense make on without it overwhelming or overcoming and becoming the sort of the end, you know, the thing itself. I'm using lots of vague terms. There. Hey, we're, we're in the vague business. <laughs> That's right. Well, we're, I think we're in the conceptual business. Yeah. And so you have to kind of be able to operate freely in a common conceptual space. It's speculative business. That sounds better than yeah, vague. I like that. Yeah. One. <laughs> it, That's, it, that one's nicer. I mean, it's fuzzy. It's fuzzy, it's abstract, it's often qualitative, but you need to find some kind of common ground on which, and see, I keep coming back to these metaphors that are terrain, ground, etc. but we're talking about spatializing thought. <laughs> However, it's also been used as, you know, used and abused right. as a means of claiming, colonizing, and treating the future as real estate to own. Yep. And that's when you go too far. I want to get to two more questions before we get to the last segment. Sorry, we get long oh, answers. Last segment to the show. No. I answer long questions. So <laughs> we're all, that's right. <laughs> I think we're in really good company, but I want to get to these last two before we get to the last two segments. So there's a quote by Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and I wrote it down so I wouldn't butcher it, which will, I think, lead into a conversation about storytelling and, and probably link us back to the, the past idea as well. So Wilson Gilmore, brilliant abolitionist thinker, and what she says, she says many good things, but in this particular instance, 
would the world would become already exist in fragments and pieces, experiments and possibilities? And I love that quote in particular because it, again, links to this idea of understanding past notions. A lot of this stuff is already here. And it also helps us, I think, think about how we tell this story. How do we focus it on possibilities, experiments, that these are not fixed points that we're all getting to at the same time. So I wanted to use that quote to interrogate how you guys think about storytelling in particular and this idea of fragments and pieces that already exist in order to tell those those stories. I'm getting the look, which means that it's my answer. The, uh, <laughs> you know, earlier we were talking about sort of generalized or conceptualized or broader based maps visions, frameworks, things like that. And that is useful up until a point until you need lived in detail. And as a storyteller, I'm pretty aware of the need for lived in detail. As a writer, that's one of the things that you need to put inside your story so that people actually relate to the thing that you're talking about. It's another way of showing your work, actually. You're inviting people in. It's like, yeah, I know what flavors of ice cream are at your corner store. I know what that subway ride feels like. I know what it smells like. I know what it sounds like. I know how few seats there are, things like that. Because that proves to your audience or it proves to your to your reader or, or whomever that like, look, you are interested in the sensory experience of what this future is like. And one of the things that we do whenever we land somewhere is we spend our time whenever we land somewhere, and I can't remember if this made it into the book or not, but we just sort of go out. And we either shop or we often we go to a grocery store. <laughs> no, that's, I would go there too. <laughs> it's not like you're dragging me there, kicking and screaming or something. But we see how people live. You know, we want to see how people live. And inevitably, you know, invariably, whatever we saw during that trip, like just sort of during that ambient sort of sense taking trip, we work into a presentation or we talk, we use as a way to sort of prove to people like, look, no, we're here. We're interested in this. And I think for storytelling, you have to include those kinds of details that prove that you're an interested party or that you have a stake in this too, and that you are actually sort of sensitive to the way that people actually live and how they might actually live in a possible future. And that's where you look at you know, what has changed and, and what has not, or what trends have perpetuated and what trends have not. And for different locations and in different companies and in different fields, all of those things are, are sort of variable, like they will be different each time. You know, you'll find when you're writing a story or when you're creating a vision of a possible future or you're working creatively, there's a lot of ways in which this is very similar to an arts practice. And some of that is in sort of shaking up all of those fragments and seeing how they align with each other. I think Scott's word for it is combinatorial futures, where we sort of, you know, look and, and see how do these puzzle pieces fit together? Do they fit together? Does this go with that or not? And I think there's an important thing to kind of come to here uh, around sort of, it's back to a kind of tactical thing or really a strategic thing that there are strategic reasons for telling stories in certain ways, in certain forms and including certain elements that it isn't, you know, I think there's a kind of idea that somehow we're just kind of coughing up interesting stories of the future, you know, that, well, tell me some, tell me, you know, tell me some science fiction. And there are definitely more kind of free form and creative sides to that. But there's also, especially when you're using those forms intentionally to communicate certain things, you're choosing mm -hmm. that capsule, that vessel, that container very specifically for a reason. And you should be choosing what's in that container very specifically for reasons. So, the telling of strategic stories, I think, is something that is something where we talk about constantly. We're working on a workshop on the basis of that to to do publicly soon. You know, there is an art and science to selecting the right elements. And whether you're talking about a technical scenario of, you know, in the year 2040, X, Y, and Z happen, or if you're telling it in terms of the day in the life of a young woman in a different country or, you know, in an interesting setting, there are reasons they aren't, we aren't just kind of free-forming at it. You can't see the seams, but there are reasons for using certain elements in telling that story because you aren't just weaving fables or spinning tales. You are trying to communicate something with a strategic payload of, you know, of importance. It's a different form than a PowerPoint presentation or a spiral-bound report, but it can contain the same heft 
an impact and as one of those business documents, quote unquote? I think you should always be able to answer, why did you do it that way? <laughs> yes. When you're standing in front of these people and they ask you, well, why did you set it from this perspective? Why did you tell this story from this perspective? Why did you set it at this time? Why did you, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. You should be able to answer why. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't just be because I liked it that way. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. That's less convincing. There has to be a line of reasoning behind it. Just yeah, grabbing a random persona and putting them in a futury situation and describing a day in their life. That should be like your last resort, <laughs> not your first option for telling a story. Yeah. No, and you can tell when someone's done it that way. When you've read enough of these, you can absolutely tell when it got done that way. And I actually, I had a conversation with a client recently where they were like, oh, well, why, why is this character doing this? And I said, well, I, you know, and I had to back up my reasoning for why this person was behaving this way based on the technology that they were mm-hmm. using, which is a technology and development. And they said, oh, okay. And... <laughs> And this actually bleeds into, we do do some fiction work together. And it bleeds into that as well. Oh, yeah. There, oh, yeah. there is no fun free form yeah. storytelling. It's like, well, she's doing that or he's doing this because of this thing. And well, you'll figure it out much further down the line. But there are all of these through lines of change happening that is, they're going to cross over later. I think this is perfect to set us up for the, the final question before we get into the final two segments of the show, which are pretty quick, down and dirty. But we've been obviously spending a lot of time on a big topic, right? That it doesn't matter how much time we have, there's always going to be more to discuss and and break down. And what I was left with as I was kind of reflecting on the book was this idea of, as we look at the world, and and you guys spend obviously a lot of time working in a lot of different areas. So I, I thought you were kind of uniquely positioned to share your thoughts on this, is that it feels like there's parts of the world that are engaged with a future. And then there's parts of the world that are actually regressing away from the future. I live in one of those places regressing, in my opinion, right? So I'm interested in what do you think makes up the fertile ground for one versus the other? Because we're, we're clearly not all engaged with the idea of the future in, in the same way. So big football thrown out there. So there's there's one way of kind of thinking about it in terms of like the countries or, or cultures, the societies that have really sharpened their kind of futures tool set and actively apply them. And I'm thinking about places like Singapore, Finland, the Netherlands, UAE, where we've done work. They tend to be smaller places, heavily dependent on external or sort of sensitive to external shocks and threats. There's something sitting right next to them or near them. And so they've, they've become very good at building these capabilities in as an operating procedure for you know survival, it's a successful survival and, and kind of protection of culture and protection of society. There are those countries and cultures that have, for various other reasons, don't do that because they either feel like it, it's not important, they you know have enough of a kind of deep narrative that they can cruise on that for a while. The U.S. is, is a, an interesting case in that it has no quote-unquote natural mythology. Well, the ones that were kind of paved over in the 1600s, 1700s and displaced. And then the rest, I'm reading Kurt Anderson's new book right now, the name of which completely escapes me. It's a really interesting look at economic history of the U.S. in the past couple of centuries and, and what stories are told and what stories aren't told. And there is no default narrative or that narrative has kind of died off and has been, it hasn't been replaced. So just like companies or organizations, you need stories that tell you back to the previous question. You need stories that give you a kind of general trajectory of what's next. You know, it lays out the three-act drama of what comes next. And so either a lack of those kind of infrastructure pieces that help you be good at futuring as on an ongoing basis or the absence of a big narrative either make America great again or build back better are both regressive narratives. I have a preference for one of them (laughs) given the other, but they're not stories that go forward in the sense of like, they're not laying out a future, laying out a temporary choice. Yeah. I think that there's a thing in there about how many futures are always unfolding on top of each other at the same time. Right. And not in just a sort of many universe theory of, quantum physics or what have you. It's it's that it's that some people get to live in the future and others don't. Mm-hmm. 
and some people want to live in the future and others do not. There's the future being un- unequally distributed, quote, but there's also, there's, I think that there's, there are people who, whose vision of a future is the past. And that's an inherently sort of conservative idea or an inherently like to preserve the existence of a certain time set or a certain, you know, world that's to conserve that is at its root what that's trying to do. And I think what you see is there's this sort of dynamic tension or push and pull or elasticity or tensile strength or this sort of time oriented rubber band of culture between people who are pushing forward. You know, the avant-garde is to say literally the advance guard, the people who are pushing forward the tip of the spear, you know, the thin end of the wedge, who are pushing forward into one future. And then there's sort of a rubber band wrapped around a, a nail that's pulling the other way. And inevitably, like sometimes there's a snap. Sometimes that truncheon is too much and it snaps. But other times, you know, it just yeah. That again, that that avant-garde can sort of pull things along forward. Again, to use the Paris is Burning example, when Paris is Burning sort of came, when it arrived on the documentary scene, people, you know, the audiences were sort of like, "Oh my God, this mysterious world! Who could have imagined that this was going on?" And now that's syndicated television. That's very mainstream. There's drag brunch now, <laughs> but still scary to people. But still scary, yeah. And so there's like this weird layer or these weird layers of of being able to sort of look at who gets to be in the future and who doesn't and who gets to choose those futures and who doesn't. And one of the things that's happening right now is that rather than weaving together a broader narrative where we can live in that future with people who Paris is burning or wherever else successfully, it's become much easier to define very, very narrow narratives competing narratives of the future that are acting kind of in parallel to each other. Mm-hmm. So we're disappearing into these kind of future fandoms. Yes. That makes it really easy to both simultaneously tell stories about the future, but tell them in very micro ways that aren't useful on a large scale. Yeah. So, you know, you have a future and you have a future. It's like Oprah, you know, you get a future and you get a future. Yeah, and they're, a future. they're radically different. They have different actors. They have different, you know, winners and losers. And we're not binding them together in enough of a bundle so that they can coexist. And, you know, so that's part of the reason we start out with those framing questions is sometimes to find out what has been the official future here. What is the operating story? What is the tag tagline you're, you're operating under? Is it, you know, connecting people? Is it, you know, make America great again? Is it whatever? And how do we understand where that would point going forward so we can f- figure out whether a new story is needed or not? Absolutely. And it's definitely not make America great again. I can (laughs) safely say that. I'll expunge that from your brains by mentioning that the book I'm reading is Evil Geniuses by Kurt Anderson. So awesome. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we're in a great place. I want to get to off the dome, which are just some rapid fire questions. Like like it says, the first thing that, that comes to mind, and I have three of them. I had four, but the fourth one was kind of meh anyway. So we're going to skip it. (laughs) So we leave time also to get to the drop. So, you know, the first one is, as you're thinking about your next engagement, who would you want on your team to help determine the best future? And it could be anybody. This is a historical kind of question. It doesn't have to be like, oh, I really don't want to work with like (laughs) Mary at this other agency, you know? You have passed the wrong people. Gosh, that's a really difficult question. Miles Davis. That was good. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna let you have that one and skip. Okay. The, move to the next one. <laughs> <I can't hear. laughs> what one piece of advice would you give to someone who was interested in being engaged or being a part of of being a futurist? What one piece of advice? Sleep. Sleep. Get plenty of sleep. <laughs> sleep now because you won't when you're doing this work. Actually, that's yeah. Take care of yourself. That's good. Yeah. And, you know, I'll throw in some advice too. Like taking care of yourself is a good one, right? Because sometimes this shit gets depressing. Mm. (laughs) Well, we bring it up. There's, yeah. yeah. We write about it in the book. We wrote an article about it this summer. You know, how do you stare into the void in difficult times and still maintain your ability to do this successfully? Because it's a question that people ask us, like point blank to our faces. We arrive somewhere and people are like, wait, so how? How do you look so fresh when you're looking at such awful things? Well, (laughs) I wear this great primer. And (laughs) And I wear funky glasses. (laughs) Cover up my dark rings. Okay, our, our last off the dome is, if you can immediately gain one skill, what would it be? To speak any language that I wanted. 
more empathy. As someone struggling to learn Italian, I definitely agree <laughs> with the learning of a language. And again, as someone who wrestles with um, empathy and compassion for people who I don't agree with, <laughs> I, I'm struggling with that one too. So I, I relate to both <laughs> of, of your of your thought processes. So those are great. Now, now we're going to, into the drop, the final segment of the show, where we can give recommendations on something that our listeners should should check out and it can be anything. Drops are open-ended. So and we've kind of been sprinkling some drops throughout the course of the conversation. Maybe some books mentioned, some other things to check out, which is always good and lets me know I'm talking to the right kind of people. So I can go first with my drop. You know, you guys can go however you want to do it. You go first and I'll give us time to think. My drop yeah. is actually really fast. And I just, this past weekend, so I'm kind of dating this episode a little bit, American Utopia debuted on HBO. Um, and it's David Burns' um, Broadway show, Spike Lee directed the telecast version of that. And it, so it, it just debuted on HBO. I love Talking Cads. I love David Burns. So I'm kind of speaking. It's a captive audience for me, but I just thought it was a really great piece of musical production and theater. And the message was resonant. The music was amazing. The band was amazing. Just I had all the pieces. I love to see really great stage work. There's a lot out there, but this one I thought was particularly resonant. So my drop is American Utopia by David Byrne, courtesy of Spike Lee, my brother in Brooklyn. Fantastic. All right, Madeline, you're going to take the hit first. I'm torn. This is why I have a problem answering, answering these things, because I always want to pick two. You can pick two. Two is allowed. People have given oh, okay. me three or four. Right. So. Oh, okay, great. All right. Uh, so my friend uh, Natalie Zena Walshots has a novel out now called Hench, which is about the gig economy for the henchmen of supervillains and what happens when a gig worker, a gig worker henchwoman gets catastrophically injured and starts doing the financials on what superheroes cost the economy and uh, in, within this world. And it turns into this novel of revenge. And, you know, it's like if David Cronenberg did a superhero story. And I hope that lots of people read it. The other thing that I'm, I may be stealing from Scott is I'm going to recommend that everybody watch Dark on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> Again, one of the things that we actually agree on consistently is uh, speaking of many possible futures and the tiny, tiny things that you can do to change them, the tiny infinitesimal changes that there can be between futures. Dark is entirely about that. And it is also fiendishly complicated as a series. And it will distract you from the news, from whatever it is that you need to be distracted by, because you will need to break out your entire murder wall of plotting to keep track of all of this. And so I encourage everybody to get into it. Wow. So, you, yeah, you took that one right out from under me. Um, yeah, because we actually, we, we have no off time from from each other or collectively <laughs> as, a, as a group, it's true. organization. It's true. I mean, we're in, two different, we're in two different continents, but we we, we are all watching TV and consuming culture nonstop when we're not, quote unquote, on the clock. And part of that is because there's no real line between the sort of, the, the way we think about fictional narratives and how they're built and mm -hmm. kind of what we were just talking about and kind of talking about the future. And so... Like we're also consuming large quantities of pop culture, uh, a lot of TV in the last six months, as, as everybody else has done. You know, I want to give a shout for devs, which is, you know, a lot of people hated on the FX series, in part because I wrote an essay on it about a very weird aspect of the show that I think was either I'm hallucinating or wasn't really kind of seen. And that was the the, the kind of the type of narrative that it was. The show itself is very moody, and I, I like kind of atmospheric things. So Dark is another one. I'm actually watching The Third Day right now, which has come from Sky Atlantic and Punch Drunk, which was a, a immersive theater company based in London. They've done, they did Sleep No More, which I think opened in New York as a kind of live immersive theater performance, which they also ran in Shanghai. And they did an amazing program a few years ago called The Drowned Man in London. But Jude Law stars in it. It's running on HBO, and it is... Actually, two different sets of micro-narratives, three-episode shorts with a six-hour live performance in the middle that you can now watch in retrospect on Facebook through the Sky TV page. I'm a huge fan of narrative experimentation in those forms because they're both, they make my brain happy, <laughs> but also they draw you in. So Dark is, is one of those that you know, a lot of people didn't like. But at the same time, if you did like it, you were in for, yeah. you were in all the way. And I've also been reading a lot of 
I've gone back and let, read a lot of kind of history of technology and social thought and uh, like Jill Lepore's new book, If Then, which looks back in the 1950s and 60s at the, the early use of quote unquote data and analytics and understanding the U.S. population and how it would vote. The book itself has, you know, its ups and downs and flaws, but the story is interesting and it runs kind of parallel to research that we've been doing back into the early work of Rand Corporation and futures and forecasting. So it all kind of goes back. There's a time element. There's a forward, backward sort of forecasting element to a lot of this. And I think understanding where you've been, but communicating it in interesting ways. Those are great drops. Thank you for sharing those. It's funny. I'll say this really quick. When, you know, Madeline, when you mentioned the book, I don't know if you ever watched this show, but it's an um, animated show. It was on Disney Channel a few years ago, even though they made a couple of terrible live movies. Kim Possible. Or, yeah, I never got to watch it because my parents could never afford cable. But yes, I know what you're talking about. In the show, there's a corporation that makes henchmen. Right. <laughs> yes. So yes. it's just kind of a funny, it, it immediately, it yes. immediately took to me it. back to like mid-2000s, um, Kim Possible. But no, those are great drops. You know, this was a great episode. I kept you guys longer than I said I would, but there's tons of good stuff in here. I really appreciate you both coming on the deep dive. This is great. Thank you for having us and thank you for digging into the book. It's been enjoyable for us. Yeah, thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you guys. I really, really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure having Scott Smith and Madeline Ashby join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what we're putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarflungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, Wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.